Well, good morning, and good morning, and good morning. Okay, we finally got there. Um, I think if a survey was taken of people's least favorite ways for a preacher to start a message, somewhere near the top of the list would be to start a message with the statement, when I was in seminary, because that usually means death on a Triscuit is about to follow. Um, so to start this morning, when I was in seminary, um, I took a course on exposition of Psalms, uh, uh, partly because I love the Psalms, partly because I'm kind of a music guy, uh, and partly just because I wanted to be able to understand them better. And the first day of class, the prof there at Talbot, uh, where I went to school, uh, Talbot School of Theology, um, Ed Curtis was the teacher. And the first day of class, he said, um, in the Bible, we have 66 books. Now, for seminary students, that, by the way, was not a newsflash. We already had that bit. Um, he said, in the Bible, we have 66 books. In 65 of them, God speaks to us. But in the book of Psalms, we speak to God. And clearly, I never forgot that. Because I thought, that clears up a lot of things, and it also opens up a lot of doors. There are a whole lot of things in the Psalms that if we just read them at face value, we might think, wait a minute, why is this in the Bible? Wait a minute, what's God telling me to do here? And the reality is, that's not what's on the table. What we have in the Psalms is an inspired record of human beings reacting and responding to life. And that response is visceral, that response is emotional, that response is oftentimes intense, but more than anything else, that response is always honest. It's always authentic. And I think that's one of the reasons why when we're in different situations in life, we're drawn to the Psalms because our hearts resonate with whatever the psalmist is saying about the situation at hand. And so if it's a, a, a creation history psalm and they're praising God for the universe that he's made, then there's joy and celebration, but it's always visceral and it's always honest. Or if it's a psalm where they're thinking about the coming Messiah and the deliverer that they're expecting, and it might be with hope and anticipation, but it's always emotional and it's always honest. But many of the psalms, sometimes called songs of lament, have a different kind of emotion attached to them because these are songs being sung by people in the dark underbelly of life in that moment. And as they respond to that situation, they are crying out to God, and they are crying out to God emotionally and honestly. And so when we read in one of the Psalms, for example, that someone says about their enemies, let the heads of their babies be crushed against the rocks. I mean, if you have any of the shred of human decency in you, that should horrify you. But understand, God's not endorsing that. God's not approving that. God's certainly not instructing that. What God's doing is saying, this is how angry this person is at this moment. Take note of that. Pay attention to that. 
Because that kind of darkness can overtake any of us if we're not walking with him. Songs of lament are what we're going to do this week and next week in my final two Sundays with you. And um, today I'll direct your attention to Psalm 13. Psalm 13, and it's a brief psalm. It's only six verses, but it is almost a prototype of what a song of lament is like. And the thing you need to understand about songs of lament, and when I said earlier it opens up doors of opportunity for us, is that the very fact that God has inspired this to be captured in the Scripture for us tells us something. It tells us that God is open to our honest lament. He's not put off by that. We don't have to come to God and pretend to be something that we aren't in a situation that we aren't. We can come to him and be absolutely honest knowing that he will receive that because he loves us that much. If God did not approve of this kind of communication to him, we wouldn't have so many of these psalms in the Bible. Beyond that, it also gives us the reality of why God shows us this, because it's not just to sit and weep and mourn and grieve and complain without end. It is lament because it is something that takes us from that place to a different place. And that's what makes lament so important. I remember a number of years ago, Michael Card, um, uh, who most of you know as a singer and songwriter, but who in more recent years has become a very profound Bible teacher, uh, and maybe he was all along. It's just the, the shift between music and teaching has gone like that for Mike. But I remember him doing a message called The Lost Art of Lament. Now, that doesn't sound like a course that any of us would want to sign up for because if you're lamenting, there's something to lament, and that's probably not good. But the reason it's the lost art of lament is because it takes us from that dark place to higher ground. And we want to see that happen today as we look at, at, at Psalm 13. Now, it's interesting. There's an Old Testament professor who has, I think, the best name in history for an Old Testament professor. His name is David Lamb. Now, how much better could you get than that for an Old Testament guy? David, who fills the pages of the Old Testament, and lambs, which are everywhere in the Old Testament. So David Lamb. Uh, David Lamb said that songs of lament, psalms of lament have five parts, okay? Five parts. And we're going to see these parts, not just so that we can analyze the psalm, we're going to see these parts mostly so that we can see the, the trajectory, the arc, the movement of this song. Because it's a song, as we've said, that's going somewhere. And it's going somewhere better than where it starts. Okay? So let's look at Psalm 13. And anytime you look at a psalm, the first thing you need to do is see what kind of information is available to you. And that's in what we call the superscription. And, and it's under Psalm 13, there will be probably some smaller print. And, and sometimes it'll give us information on the context in which this song was written. So like with Psalm 51, it says, a psalm of David after he had messed up with Bathsheba and been confronted by Nathan the prophet. Okay, now we have a context in David's story to inform us of why he is singing this song. Psalm 13, the superscription just says, for the choir director, a psalm of David. 
It doesn't give us any historical details. It doesn't give us any historical context. It just gives us David. And so scholars have kind of divided over whether this was sung by David when he was being pursued by King Saul or when he was being pursued by his son Absalom. We don't know. It may have even been some other time. But whatever it was, it was a time of great despair and great sorrow and great heartache. And we feel the weight of that. Because again, these songs of lament are always emotional and they're always honest. (laughs) And we feel the weight of both the emotion and the honesty as he sings this song. So let's look. And, And kids... Uh, I'm glad they put it up on the screen for you so I don't have to spell invocation because I'd probably misspell it. But the first ingredient, the first component in a song of lament is the invocation. Now, uh, uh, the word invocation is kind of a 75-cent word that simply means calling to. It means calling to. And so an invocation is when you call to God to respond to you. It's not what you're calling him to respond to, it's that you're calling him to respond. And that's found in verse 1, just in the two words, O Lord. O Lord. He says, how long? O Lord. And immediately, this gives us a different trajectory for his complaint than for our complaints, because he's taking his complaint directly to God. Some of you are old enough, and I know because you're as old as I am, and I'm old enough, to remember when you would walk into a big department store or something, and off to the right or off to the left, you would see a sign over a desk, and the sign did not say customer service. The sign said complaint desk. Any of you remember the complaint desk at Montgomery Ward or Sears Roebuck and Company? Do you remember that whole big long name? You would go to the complaint desk, and guess what you would do at the complaint desk? You would complain. Now, what you knew is that the person at the complaint desk was not the person you had the problem with. They were just there to deal with the problem you had. They weren't the cause of your problem. They weren't the source of your problem. They were just there to mediate the problem at the complaint desk. I remember hearing a pastor say one time that he felt like he had been condemned to spend his life working the complaint desk for heaven. Because every time something happened in somebody's life, in his congregation, their problem was most of the time with God, but he would be the one who would get the tongue lashing. (laughs) Notice what David does. He doesn't go to an intermediary. He doesn't go to a third party. He doesn't go to some kind of arbitration service. He goes directly to God with his problems. And that is of critical importance. And it's of critical importance for two reasons. Even in the midst of his despair, the very fact that he's going to God with his despair is a hint that even though he's not happy with God right now, still in his heart, he knows that God knows. 
what he's going through. He knows that even though his life is not the way he wants it to be right now, that not only does God know what he's going through, God cares about what he's going through. And not only does he know that God knows and cares about what he's going through, he knows that even though God may seem to be distant and inactive in this moment, God is the one who is able to do something about what's going on. Even in his despair, he understands the heart of his God so that even though the circumstances are totally and completely dark, there's promise. There's hope. Because he has a God. How many times have we been in situations where we've been hurting or struggling or suffering, whether it's physically or in a broken relationship or, or in some kind of a grief situation where we've lost a loved one. And in that moment, we look at someone else and say, I don't know how people who don't know Christ survive something like this. Have you ever said that? I've said it. My wife has said it to me. Friends have said it to us. How do people get through this who don't know God? That's the invocation. It is a reminder that in the midst of it all, even when it seems like God is silent, even when it seems like God is distant, God is still there and he's listening to our cry. And what makes this such a revolutionary idea is the fact that if we're honest, much of the time, like David right here, much of the time, a big part of our problem is God himself. Because we don't understand why either he allowed this situation in the first place or why he hasn't moved to fix this situation. Either way, no matter what the situation is, it's easy for us to feel like there's a sense of responsibility on God's part for not intervening for us. And we struggle with that, and we wrestle with that, and we don't know what to do with that, but we still cry, oh Lord, in invocation. Because at the end of the day, he is still who we have and whose love is absolute. So he starts with invocation, oh Lord. Then he begins his complaint. Now we're at the complaint desk. Now we're at the complaint desk. Notice verses 1 and 2. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? You notice those two, first two statements. Those first two statements tell us that not only is David not happy with his situation, he's not happy with God either. Because he keeps waiting for God to show up and God's not showing up. Verse 2, how long shall I take counsel in my soul having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? And it doesn't matter at this point whether it's a human enemy or whether it's a health enemy or whether it's a relational enemy. Whatever the enemy is at this point, David feels overwhelmed. He feels overwhelmed in this season of struggle. And here's what's so interesting about it. I want you to think of struggles like a coin, okay? Think of it like a coin. And a coin has two sides. And one side of the coin is the nature of the struggle itself. The nature of the struggle itself. And sometimes that struggle can just be so debilitating and so draining and so taxing and so demoralizing and so disheartening. And the struggle itself, it just feels like, oh, 
Oh, I, I, I just don't know how to go further. I don't know what to do next. I don't know how to respond. And, and you go into these seasons of, this is too much for me. By the way, when you look down at verse 3, and he says in verse 3, lest I sleep the sleep of death, Hebrew scholars tell us that that is probably a Hebrew, Hebrew euphemism for depression. And that would match up with having sorrow in my heart all the day. I mean, the struggle itself is so overwhelming and so burdensome and so defeating, and, and we're stuck in the middle of that. But that's only one side of the coin. The other side of the coin of the struggle is the how long. Four times in two verses, he says, how long? You think that bothers him? You think it bothers him? It must bother him a lot for him to say it four times in two verses. How long? How long? How long? How long? And it's, it's, it's to the point now where it's not just the struggle. It's the fact that it seems like the struggle's never going to end. We just can't see a way out. We just can't see an answer. We can't find a solution. What are we going to do? Because not only is this unbearable in and of itself, but the longer it goes on, the more unbearable it gets. So that the pain and the struggle of the moment is compounded by what seems to be God's lack of interest in the problem. That's tough. That's tough. That's very, very hard. As David considers his situation, disturbed by both adversaries and adversity, he struggles with God's seeming absence and distance from him in this struggle. That's his complaint. And his complaint is not just about the situation, it is a complaint to God for not intervening. So we start off with invocation, and then we come to complaint. And now we come to the third part, and this is the part of request. And the part of request is important because a lot of times, as someone historical said many years ago, it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. <laughs> And this is what makes a song of lament so important because it doesn't just stay in the darkness. It moves toward the light. It moves toward the light. And we see that in David's request in verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord. Enlighten my eyes. Now, there are three verbs in there. And all three of them matter because all three of them form his request. Even though the first two move toward the request, all three are important. And all three give us a sense of, of, of the despair that David feels right now. The first word is consider or, or look. And it really, if you go back to verse 1, it is the counterpoint to he says, how long will you hide your face from me? When he says look or how long will you hide your face from me? What he's asking for is not just for God to look, but for God to look upon him with favor. In the Aaronic blessing, the, the benediction of Aaron that was instructed to be said at the end of every worship service in Israel for all time and perpetuity, and one that in many liturgical churches has been picked up, the, the, the ironic blessing says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord give you peace. 
the part of that blessing that resonates with David's heart right now is to make his face shine upon you. Because that what, that's what it means to look with favor. In ancient times, if you had a problem or a situation or a need and you came before the king, you would be brought in before the king and you would be announced to the king. And if the king turned and looked away, how long will you hide your face from me? <laughs> if the king turned and looked away, you would immediately be taken out of the king's presence. If, however, the king looked at you and smiled, you knew he was going to step in and help you with your situation because he was looking on you with favor. He was making his face shine upon you. And that's what David's longing for. David's longing for God's favor because up to this point, it feels like God has turned his face away and left him to this on his own. He feels like God's turned his face, but he wants him to look upon him with favor, to make his face shine because that's the first step toward resolution. Consider and then answer. Don't just look on me with favor. Do something. Do something. Connect here. God, this is too big for me, but it's not too big for you. So I want you to not only look on me with favor, I want you to act on that. I want you to act on that and become involved and do something. And then comes the actual big idea request. And this is the big idea of Psalm 13. This is where the arc and trajectory have been going all along. Enlighten my eyes. The phrase enlighten my eyes is another euphemism, and, and it basically means give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. I don't know what to do. Give me wisdom. Solomon, when he's made king over Israel. He has a dream, and God comes to him in the dream and says, ask anything you want, and you've got it. And he says, God, give me wisdom. And God says, that's the right request. That's the right request. He's saying, God, give me wisdom, because when we receive wisdom from above, James 3 says that that wisdom from above is pure and peaceable and full of good fruits, and on and on and on. It is a wisdom that engages life differently because it is a wisdom that reflects God's perspective. And that's what's so important here. Notice he does not ask for God to solve the problem. Now, certainly I'm sure he hopes God will solve the problem, but that's not what he asks for. What he asks for is wisdom to know how to deal with the problem, to know how to respond to the problem, to know how to work through the problem. I need wisdom. And here's the beauty of that, folks. Here's the beauty of that. That prayer that David just offered is the one prayer that the scriptures guarantee God will always answer. Always answer. The most prayed prayer in the Bible, by the way, is Lord have mercy. That's the most prayed prayer in the Bible. But the prayer that God promises he will always answer is God give me wisdom. James 1, if anyone lacks wisdom, let them ask of God who gives it generously. No qualifiers. 
No boundaries. God promises that when we go to Him seeking wisdom, He will give it. And you know what's so cool about it here in Psalm 13 is that God immediately answers it because the first word of verse 5 is but. Everything up to the word but has been negative and dark and debilitating. Everything after but is positive and good and hopeful. (laughs) And by the way, we're not talking about the power of positive thinking or anything like that here. What we're talking about here is a changed perspective because we have received wisdom from God. And what's so exciting about it is that this word but forms the hinge to take us from the darkness of the situation and the darkness of the the confusion and all of the things that David has expressed and takes us all the way into trust. Trust. Now, what makes that so interesting is the fact that he is going to renew his trust in the God that he's not sure is handling this thing very well. That's what faith is. Remember, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We don't trust God once we see him do something. We trust God as we await him doing something. As we anticipate and expect him to do something. And so he says, and here's his statement of trust, but I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Now, if you look at that carefully, David is living in the present tense. But wisdom is giving him perspective on the present tense as he looks back to the past tense and ahead to the future tense. He's in the future tense. His circumstances haven't changed. His problem hasn't changed. His darkness hasn't changed. But wisdom tells him, look back. Look back to the God whose faithful love you have trusted in the past. And it may be a situation like when David went to Saul and said, I'm ready to take down Goliath for you. And Saul said, you're just a kid. How can you do it? And David said, hey, listen, one day I was out watching my father's flocks and a bear came. And God strengthened me to deal with that bear. And another day, a lion came. And God strengthened me to deal with that lion. What what that was, was he was looking back to God's faithful love in the past as a precedent for what he expects from God in the present. What he expects from God in the present is for him to still be faithful as he has been. And even though his situation changes, he looks forward to the day that it will because he says, my heart will rejoice in your salvation. And there's confidence there. The change that has come about with the perspective of God's wisdom has taken him from how long, oh Lord, how long are you going to forget me? How long are you to the fact that, wait a minute, wait a minute. I had this other situation and you didn't forget me and I was there and you didn't forget me and I was into that and you didn't forget me. And just like I rejoiced when you worked in the past, I will rejoice as you work going forward. See, here's what happens in a song of lament and this is what makes it a lost art. It starts off with where we are but it doesn't leave us there. 
It doesn't leave us there. It moves us through not some kind of fakery or some kind of, of, of ignoring of the reality of the situation. No, it fully acknowledges the situation. It fully accepts the situation and recognizes the reality of it. It does all of those things, and then it says, but I'm going to trust God anyway. And all of a sudden, we've moved to higher ground. Because trust in God is always higher ground. Even when we don't understand what's happening, even when we're crying ourselves to sleep at night, even when our problems never seem to go away, even when we don't seem to ever get answers, even when God seems silent and distant, we trust Him. Why? Because He's proven that He's worthy of that trust. He's proven that He can be trusted. And so we look to the past and remember. And we look to the future and anticipate the time we'll rejoice. See? This is brilliant stuff. Because it absolutely is true to life. But it doesn't leave us there. It moves us to Him and His goodness and His grace and his mercy. And that's why the psalm ends of all things with worship. <laughs> Isn't it amazing that a song that started off as troubled as this one did would end up with a statement of worship? It says, verse 6, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, in this moment, it doesn't feel like he's dealing bountifully with me. In this moment, it doesn't feel like I've got anything to sing about. In this moment, it doesn't feel like any of that stuff makes any sense. But he has dealt bountifully with me. That's his faithfulness in the past. And on the basis of that faithfulness in the past, I trust him that he will deal bountifully with me in the future, and that gives me cause for worship. So I'm going to sing. Now, you'll be happy to know that literally, no, I'm not going to sing. But David's going to sing. <laughs> David's going to sing because his heart and his confidence and his faith has been rekindled through the process of lament. And that's why we need to recapture this lost art. Because we all face these struggles. We all face these trials. And some of you right now are in the midst of something and you think this is never going to end. There's no solution. There's no answer. I don't know where to turn. And you're here and, and you're only maybe halfway here. But maybe David's experience can inform yours. That in the moment when it seems like God has gone silent, he's not. When it seems in the moment that God has lost interest, he has not. The same God that you trusted in the past, you can trust now. And sing of who he is. When I first became a, a follower of Christ, I was actually a student in Bible college. Um, I was in Bible college when I came to know Christ. And there was a, a guy in my dorm... <clears throat> Uh, named Macaulay Rivera, uh, great guy, a great guy, African-American kid from uh, Washington, D.C. And he decided he was going to disciple me because he'd been a Christian a lot longer than I had because I'd been a Christian about 30 seconds. And uh, so anybody had been a Christian longer than I had. Um, and he decided to disciple me, but he was really smart. 
And one of the things that he figured out really quickly was that um, I really resonated with music. Okay? So in his discipling, we would often listen to music together, and then we would talk about the songs and how those songs express the truths of the Scriptures. Not unlike a psalm. And, and the reason I remember it so clearly in this context is because I grew up in West Virginia. And uh, in West Virginia, back when I became a Christian, there were only two kinds of music. There was high church music, which was kind of the church I grew up in. No gospel, but Bach oratorios. You know, that's what I grew up in. And then the other option for music was southern gospel. And... I don't want to offend anybody, but you just need to know, I don't like Southern gospel. Actually, I feel more strongly than that, but I'm trying to be, you know, restrained. Um, So I'm sitting there thinking, here, I love music, I love music, I love music, and I really don't want that oratorio stuff, but I, I, I can't stand that twangy thing, you know. So, so I was kind of stuck, and, 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 and Mac started introducing me to music that would sing harmony with my heart. (laughs) And we were sitting having one of our conversations in the dorm one day, and he played a song that was the modern equivalent of Psalm 13. I'd never heard music like this before. And it opened up all kinds of doors for me. It was by Andre Crouch and the Disciples. And the song said, I've had many tears and sorrows. I've had questions about tomorrow. There have been times I didn't know right from wrong. But in every situation, God gave blessed consolation that my trials come to only make me strong. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to depend upon his word. That's what David's saying. If we stay over here in the darkness, we never get there. But if we allow ourselves through lament to move toward our God instead of away from him, we can find that we thank God for the mountains and we thank him for the valleys and we thank him for the storms he brought us through, Andre Crouch. Because if I'd never had a problem, I'd never known that God could solve them. I'd never know what faith in God could do. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. That's the lost art of lament. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence bringing with us life. We don't come here and leave our baggage at the door. It's strapped to us. We can't escape it. Sometimes it feels like it's suffocating us, but the reality is it's there, and you know it's there. You care that it's there, and you're able to do something about it. And so we come to you.
And we bring to you our struggles and our situations and our needs and our heartaches and our hurts and our grief and our confusion and our despair. And we ask you, in the midst of this moment, to strengthen and deepen our trust in you so that we can learn afresh what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.